This is The Weekly for Friday, May 10th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our 49th state, Alaska, which is adjacent to the polar north, makes the U.S. a member of the Arctic Council. It's an organization that includes Canada, Russia, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden. While the group of nations has primarily focused on global warming and environmental issues, the Trump administration is now using the council as a key component in its foreign policy. Just ahead, we explain just what's going on in the region and why specifically China and Russia pose potential threats to the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Blake Hounshell is editorial director for Politico.com. The Yale graduate speaks multiple languages and is an expert on U.S. foreign policy. Our conversation in just a moment. But first, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, he was in Finland earlier this month. The United States is an Arctic nation. But even before the purchase of Alaska, our interests here stretched back centuries. Indigenous peoples have lived in the Arctic for generations, well before there was an America to speak of. Those remarks by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in Finland. And Blake Hounchell, as you look at the Arctic region, a vast territory, we have what's called the Arctic Council. And this clearly is something that is becoming a much greater geopolitical presence in U.S. foreign policy. So explain what's happening. Well, you know, the Obama administration uh, was really the first administration to take the Arctic Council seriously. The Arctic Council was founded in 1996 really as a, as a coordinating body, mainly for scientific and environmental research. They do a few other things like coordinating on freedom of navigation issues, but their charter explicitly rules out talking about hard security issues. And what the Trump administration is is doing is they're taking uh, a more aggressive approach to, to the Arctic. Um, the Obama administration was really all about um, preserving ecosystems and worrying about climate change. You don't hear a lot of that from the Trump administration. They're worried about Chinese encroachment in the region, Russia's growing militarization efforts in the Arctic, and they're really trying to show that they are aiming to push back on these geopolitical rivals. Why is climate change not a dominant issue? Because clearly we're seeing the effects of that based on what scientists have been researching. Sure. Well, if you talk to Trump administration officials, they get very defensive about um, the administration's policies on climate change. On the one hand, you have the president saying climate change is a hoax that was perpetrated by China. A lot of times you'll see him on Twitter talk about weather patterns, and if it's cold outside, he might say something like, aha, global warming isn't real. Um, you know, there are a lot of people at the State Department and other uh, parts of the executive branch that take climate change very seriously, but they, they, they take it especially seriously when they're meeting with allies in Europe, places like Scandinavia, which are very worried about climate change. And in the Arctic Council, which is a forum that contains eight countries, many of which are Scandinavian, um, you really have to talk about climate change if you want to be taken seriously. And those scientists from Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden, in all of those Scandinavian countries, indicating that uh, the Arctic Circle is warming about twice as fast as the rest of the planet. That's right. The recent science is very alarming. And, uh, you know, probably not a month goes by when we don't get another significant research paper, um, you know, laying out new details about the warming Arctic, the damage to ecosystems. One of the things that's happening, ironically, is that 
the melting sea ice in the Arctic. And sea ice is fluid. Sometimes it, it uh, expands, sometimes it shrinks. But overall, we're getting to a place by where pretty soon you'll have ice-free summers in the Arctic, which means that uh, new shipping lanes will open and Russia and China are moving aggressively to take advantage of that. Which leads us to the foreign policy component in all of this. So, so let's break it down first with uh, China. And here is what the Secretary of State said about the threat that we face from China along the Arctic region. And let's talk about China for a moment. China has observer status in the Arctic Council, but that status is contingent upon its respect for the sovereign rights of Arctic states. The U.S. wants China to meet that condition and contribute responsibly in the region. But China's words and actions raise doubts about its intentions. Beijing claims to be a near-Arctic state, yet the shortest distance between China and the Arctic is 900 miles. There are only Arctic states and non-Arctic states. No third category exists, and claiming otherwise entitles China to exactly nothing. So let me begin on the point that you make in your article at Politico.com. China was granted observer status during the Obama administration, something that the Trump White House is not happy about. Why? Yeah, they think it's absurd. And and you heard the secretary say that uh, the closest point between the Arctic Circle and, and any point in China is 900 miles. And the di- distance between Beijing and the Arctic Circle is even further. It's more than 1,800 miles. Um, China has really tried to worm its way into a, a number of multilateral organizations. And, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to make nice with uh, a lot of these Scandinavian countries, and, and especially... Greenland, which is a territory of Denmark, where they're looking for mining opportunities, chances to make strategic investments and curry favor with the the governments of the region uh, in order to create a network of installations across the Arctic that they're calling the Polar Silk Road. What is that? So the Polar Silk Road is is similar to the... um, Belt and Road Initiative that China has across Central Asia, where they're trying to establish these way stations and really their points of influence. One State Department official I talked to said, oh my God, these are like coaling stations that the British had in the 19th century. And the uh, the U.S. sort of national security bureaucracy views this as a Chinese attempt to establish uh, a real presence in the Arctic for the first time. And there are a lot of people inside the government and outside of it who are alarmed by that. So whether it's an investment in Iceland or scientific research centers in Norway, or as you point out in your story, uh, naval facilities, buying these naval facilities in Greenland, which is a Danish territory, do these Scandinavian countries fully realize what China is up to? Well, so there's been a lot of back and forth between the United States and Denmark in particular about Greenland, because Greenland has this unique semi-autonomous status. Um, It runs its own domestic policies, but there are a lot of gray areas. And when something impacts national security, the government in Denmark um, weighs in. And so actually, when China tried to buy an abandoned naval facility in Greenland that used to be a U.S. facility during the Cold War, Um, Denmark stepped in and said, no, 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 you can't do this. And then more recently, um, the Chinese offered to invest in international airports in Greenland, which would open up Greenland to commerce. There would be maybe direct flights to Maine and places like that. And the U.S. government 
uh, got together with Denmark and said, maybe this isn't a good idea. Could you invest the money instead of China? They pushed China out, and now the Pentagon has promised to uh, make some kind of investment in these airports as well. So you're seeing this sort of like great game playing out between the United States and China, especially in Denmark. And the end game for China is what? Well, that depends on whom you ask. Like China insists that its uh, interests are legitimate and commercial and scientific. You know, they have a stake in global warming as well. And so they've been establishing these research centers. There's one in Svalbard, which is an island uh, on, on north of Norway. Um, but the Pentagon is warning there was a new report that came out uh, not too long ago that said China could use these research centers for submarine bases somewhere down the road. And as you know, the Arctic is really crucial for the sort of nuclear balance of power between the United States, Russia, and uh, increasingly China. So that's something that you know the Pentagon war planners worry about. And those who study U.S. naval history realize that this has not been a huge priority post-Cold War for the military. That seems to be changing. That's right. Uh, In 2014, the U.S. Navy issued a report on the Arctic, and basically they said, you know what, we're not really that worried about the Arctic. We feel pretty confident that if there's a problem there, you know, we can handle it by, you know, sending our submarines or sending our our ships up uh, to the Arctic as as need be. But more recently, when the Trump administration came in, it seems there there's a change of view. The um, the second fleet, which used to be the the Atlantic fleet during the Cold War and was shuttered in 2011, is now back up and running. And one of its main missions is to watch out for Russia in places like the this something called the GIUK Gap, which is Greenland, Iceland, and and Britain. There's this uh, waterway that's pretty strategic, a choke point that leads between the Arctic. Uh, the Norwegian Sea and the Atlantic. So there's a lot of concern about especially rising Russian activity in the Arctic and near the Arctic and patrols coming out of the Arctic. And I think that's why you're seeing, seeing the Navy react now. Let me remind our listeners that we're talking with Blake Hounshell. He is the editorial director of Politico.com, and we'll turn to Russia in just a moment. But Canada is another major partner in this Arctic Council. What's its view on all of this? Uh, Canada is really an interesting player here because Canada has huge interests in the Arctic, a a massive coastline uh, near and above the Arctic Circle, lots of environmental concerns as uh, global warming uh, heats up northern Canada. But um, Canada is also a NATO country and is concerned about rising Russian influence. But at the same time, Canada has always tried to keep NATO and security issues out of the Arctic Council because they're concerned that other NATO countries, presumably the UK and France and Germany, will start to get involved in Arctic issues and Canada feels like it wants to be one of the dominant Arctic players. And I have to be honest, until I saw that the Secretary of State was going to be in Finland, I never heard of the Arctic Council. You describe it as a once sleepy organization, but now taking on some really significant roles. Well, I think there's really pressure from the outside of the organization for it to to play uh, a bigger role. Inside the organization, there's really a desire to keep things focused on scientific research, climate change, and a few other issues. So a lot of those pressures are coming from outside. I would say there's a growing interest in the Arctic itself, um, and it's not clear whether the Arctic Council is going to ultimately be the body 
that are the vehicle for a lot of those issues. So just going back to climate change for just a moment, do you sense that they will have any influence on President Trump and how this administration deals with climate change? Well, if you look at what happened uh, this week in Finland, going into the Arctic Council's meeting of foreign ministers, there was disagreement about whether to make a reference to the Paris Climate Accords or climate change at all. The Scandinavian countries were insistent that there had to be a reference to climate change. The United States didn't want it, um, recognizing the sensitivity of climate change to President Trump. And ultimately, they couldn't agree, and they issued a pretty bland statement. So that says to me that um, it's going to be a problem it, for the United States and the Arctic Council, at least under this administration, to come to some sort of consensus. So unlike China, which, as we mentioned a moment ago, has uh, observer status in the Arctic Council, Russia is a full-fledged member. That's right. And that is good on the one hand because it allows uh, Nordic countries to coordinate with Russia, it allows the United States to coordinate, coordinate with Russia on issues of concern to the Arctic. On the other hand, it's it's one part of the world, it's one multilateral organization where Rus Russia really is a dominant player. Russia has 4,000 miles of coastline in the Arctic, and Russia believes that it is the hegemon in the region. Uh, during the Cold War, Russia had a massive military presence in the Arctic, and only recently has it begun rebuilding that somewhat. Um, you know, the United States under the last few administrations has been pretty dismissive of that, but this administration, I think, is showing growing concern. Let me turn to your reporting because you write, quote, Russia is refitting submarines, boarding ships, reopening bases, and claiming exclusive rights to certain waterways. What is going on? Well, as the ice recedes, as the climate warms, the Arctic is revealing its riches. Basically, there's some, some people say as much as a quarter of the world's remaining oil and gas reserves are in the Arctic. There are lots of minerals like uh, rare earth minerals in places like Greenland that are now becoming potentially economically viable. And so part of this is a scramble for resources and the countries that want to monetize those resources, want to protect the access to them. Um, and part of it is just the way Russia does business. And I think we're seeing that Russia is really reviving its Cold War mentality in the Arctic. How do we police something like that? And I'm not just saying we as the United States, but our allies. Well, I think the U.S. view and the view of NATO countries, the Nordic countries, Canada, has been we want to keep the Arctic waterways uh, free for all to navigate. Um, you also have something called the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which mandates a certain exclusive economic zone for every country, depending on where its borders are. Now, the fly in the ointment here is that the United States is not has not ratified the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So that's made it awkward to deal with a lot of these economic rights in the Arctic in particular. Russia and China are taking advantage of that. And if we were to reverse some of the global warming effects, would that potentially have an impact on all of this? Well, I don't know anyone who really thinks we're going to reverse global warming. I think the, the real thing people worry about is are we going to be able to stop or slow it down in the meantime what you're seeing is you know china buying up mining rights in greenland for instance 
oil and gas companies looking for opportunities for Arctic drilling. Um, so, and you, you saw Secretary Pompeo's speech in Finland where he talked about all the economic opportunities that are opening up. He got a lot of blowback here in the United States and certainly in Scandinavia for, for framing the issue that way. Because to that point, is it feasible that you can then transport those raw materials back to the United States or other countries? Well, a lot of it is really dependent on, you know, volatile commodity prices. A few years ago, you had oil down uh, so low that a lot of the early claims and promises about uh, oil and gas in the Arctic were not coming true. Now, with the sense that oil might be rising in price again, a lot of those places are becoming, if not viable yet, then certainly viable in the near future. One more excerpt from the speech by the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He was in Finland, and by the way, the full speech, it's available on our website at cspan.org. We recognize that Russia is not the only nation making illegitimate claims. The U.S. has a long-contested feud with Canada over sovereign claims through the Northwest Passage. But Russia is unique. Its actions deserve special attention, special attention of this council in part because of their sheer scale but also because we know Russian territorial ambitions can turn violent. 13,000 people have been killed due to Russia's ongoing aggressive action in Ukraine. And just because the Arctic is a place of wilderness does not mean it should become a place of lawlessness. It need not be the case. And we stand ready to ensure that it has not become so. In that excerpt, Blake Hounchell, what are you hearing? Some tough words by the Secretary of State. That's right. And, you know, it's very interesting that you have this divide between what the administration says and does about Russia and what the president says. This visit to Finland and Secretary Pompeo's speech comes just after President Trump had a pretty friendly one and a half hour phone call with President Putin of Russia. And it sounded like the surround sound coming out of that phone call was very positive. You don't hear President Trump issuing those kinds of critical statements about Russia. But inside the administration, certainly, you know, in the State Department, you hear a lot of concern about Russian activities in Ukraine, in Central Europe, and in places like Venezuela. And what the secretary is trying to do in all those places where he's been traveling and making speeches is say, we are going to call out Russian behavior all over the world. We're going to push back on Russia's activities. Please ignore what you're hearing from the president. He doesn't say that explicitly, but that's the implicit message to U.S. allies and adversaries. So there is a diplomatic and a military component to all of this. Certainly, certainly. A lot of what is happening is really just diplomatic. And and one State Department official says, we're we're just trying to call out bad behavior when we see it. Uh, but certainly behind the scenes, in things like the, the second fleet being revitalized, uh, that's a message to Russia that is born in steel. And I'm curious because as we've been listening to these excerpts of the speeches and talking here in our studios, that this is a vast territory. Does the U.S. have Coast Guard vessels? Are we patrolling the area? And how do we do all of that? So this is when you get into a pretty wide gap between the rhetoric you hear from people like Secretary of State Pompeo and and the reality, which is the Coast Guard has been the main U.S. naval player in the Arctic. And as of 2010, 
the Coast Guard has only one working heavy icebreaker. That's the kind of icebreaker that can break through the thickest ice. One. One. And uh, Politico reported uh, last year that the Coast Guard had been harvesting parts for that icebreaker on eBay. So uh, it's been a real struggle to get the, the money for the icebreakers out of Congress. Last year, there was a little tug of war between folks who wanted um, about $750 million in funding that would build a new icebreaker. They wanted to divert that money to build President Trump's border wall with Mexico. And eventually it got resolved in February of 2019. So there is going to be money for another icebreaker. But that one won't be completed until 2024. And in the meantime, the current one uh, which is kind of a rust bucket. It's been around since 1976. Could very well go offline. So we might have a period of years, even, where the U.S. has no icebreaker and therefore, you know, no ability to rescue scientists who get stranded if storms hit the Arctic. No ability to um, just show a presence to say the United States is here. Russia has more than 40 icebreakers. Three of them are nuclear. Russia's building three new nuclear icebreakers. And so there are a lot of people on Capitol Hill who are saying, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. We're the, the most powerful country in the world. All we can do is field one icebreaker and that one barely even works half the time. But even still going from one to two, you have to wonder, is that going to be enough? Well, there's hope that there can be additional money for a few lighter icebreakers to get us up to six. Um, but, you know, the Coast Guard is not really seen as the, the biggest player on Capitol Hill. It doesn't have a huge budget. Um, there have been some calls. I think they're pretty marginal so far, but maybe over time that'll change to get the Navy more involved and to have the Navy take over some of these duties. But the Navy, as I mentioned, hasn't been hugely interested until very recently in the Arctic. So bottom line, and you've outlined a lot of the details in our conversation, but why should we care? Why is this important? Well, I think if you're anyone who just lives on the planet, you should be concerned about what's happening to the climate of the Arctic. And if you care about biodiversity, you should be worried about you know, the possible extinction of species living there. But beyond that, you know, there are very few places in the world that are as dynamic as the Arctic is right now. The, the melting ice, the opening up of the waterways, means that you're seeing a lot of these sort of friction points between great powers, China, Russia, the United States, and that's potentially dangerous. Uh, there's very little risk of conflict right now. I think the Pentagon will say that. But we're looking at uh, down the road as other sources of energy get tapped out around the world, if this is really the last great place of resources, there there could be friction. And that's something that should worry us and we should be hoping that we'll be able to solve these conflicts collaboratively with dialogue, not with weapons. So again, friction over resources and money, not over any strategic military component. Well, um, at least for now. Well, the the military component is is significant. The United States has air force facilities in northern Greenland, for instance, that twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, are watching for ballistic missiles being fired from Russia. Um, that's a that's a Cold War thing going back to the nineteen forties and fifties. So there are parts of this that are, you know, strategic. 
um, which is, you know, code word for nuclear weapons, basically. Uh, but most of the concerns are really about resources and how these countries are going about accessing them, elbowing others out of them, creating exclusive waterways, and keeping us from having our fair shake at the region. Let me conclude then with a question to you. If you had the chance to sit down with Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, what would you ask them? What do you want to know from Russia and China? I think I'd ask Putin or Xi Jinping, what's your end game here exactly? Do you do you really want a future where we're all sort of scrambling and fighting over the same pie? Or would you rather work out some sort of rules of the road so that it's very clear to everyone uh, what what's fair and what's not, who gets what, and what is free for everyone to access? Because it seems as if these two countries are taking the long game. They're looking 10, 20, maybe 50 years down the road. Is the U.S. doing the same thing? You know, we have elections every four years. Um, China and Russia don't have the same kind of domestic political considerations to to keep in mind. And that, unfortunately, makes the U.S. a little bit focused on the here and now. And we don't really do a great job of planning for things that are decades away. That's one unfortunate advantage of a system where you don't have a lot of changes in power. And my guess is that you will be writing a lot more about this in the weeks and months and years ahead. Absolutely. Blake Hounshell is the editorial director at Politico.com, graduate of Yale University, a foreign policy expert. Thanks very much for stopping by the C-SPAN Radio studios. Thanks for having me. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app and all of our programming at C-SPAN.org. We thank you for listening.